0: chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, we're just going to look at five verses this evening, Uh, just five verses, Um, and in looking at these five verses, what you'll notice from the very beginning actually, is that in chapter 10 beginning in verse 19, all the way down to to verse 24, what you'll notice in verse 24 is something that you've probably heard before, Something that, because you know I'm talking about it now, may be exciting for you. Uh, Because if you look at verse 24, it says, Let us watch out for one another, or let us consider one another, to provoke or to stir up love and good works. Now, you see those words and you may get excited because you're thinking, He is about to give us permission to provoke people. He is about to give us permission to stir people up. I have been wanting to say some things to some people for a while. I'm excited by this. Before you get too carried away, we are going to try to walk through the whole context of these verses and try to put it in its proper place, okay? So let's read together beginning in verse 19. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, through the blood of Jesus. He has made or he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful, and let us watch out or consider one another to provoke or stir up love and good works. And, of course, verse 25, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The letter of Hebrews Uh, and I believe I've I've talked about this before, but the letters of of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are facing intense persecution. Now, this is uh, not the type of persecution that we may think about. This is not someone making a comment or not inviting you to a get-together because they know you're a Christian. This is persecution in the sense that if someone knows that you are associated with the way, you could be put to death. You could lose your family. You could lose your job. This is the type of, when you say persecution, this is actual pers- persecution. And when the believers, the, the, the believers that are being written to here in Hebrews, while they may have been excited to follow Jesus initially, this fear has come in and started to choke out that initial. Uh, joy, maybe that initial excitement, and it went from, yes, I'll follow Jesus, to I'm not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can risk it. I'm not sure if, if I can be associated with him. This time in history in, in Rome uh, is a time where just the persecution is, is just, it's, it's disgusting. The things that are happening to Christians are almost too difficult to talk about. And it's against this backdrop that the the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to these people. And he's trying to encourage them. He's saying things that, if you look at chapter 10, verse 32, Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Or verse 39, We are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So what the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind this group of is, yes, you initially followed Jesus. You initially had so much excitement and passion in following Jesus, and now this persecution has started. Now it has become difficult to to even be associated with the household of faith, God, all of those things. And the writer is trying to remind these Christians, remember, we're not ones who draw back. He's saying, don't pull back now. Don't give up now but persevere. Continue on in the way. Continue to pursue Christ. Remember all of those times that Christ has really helped you withstand those sufferings, withstand that persecution. And so the writer of Hebrews is is doing uh, their best to communicate this to these, these scared and afraid Christians, that you don't have to take a step back but that you can continue to lean into the gospel, you can continue to pursue this relationship no matter the cost. Now in the verses that we have, I think we can split them up in a couple of different ways, but the way I want to do it tonight is if you look at verses 19, 20, and 21, I think you'll see the truth that the writer of Hebrews is offering to these people that is supposed to be the basis. Of this encouragement. And that's where I want to start, the basis for this encouragement. So, as we walk through verses 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then it goes into 22, 23, and 24, which is what you do in light of these truths. So, I just want to look at these truths. Real quickly, starting in 19 and 20, we see that because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we have a relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews is starting kind of at the beginning and saying, you have a relationship with God. But it's not as simple as just, you have a relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews is calling back to a time, you can think of the tabernacle, you can think of the temple, where there was a great high priest. And what did that high priest do? There was one day, the Day of Atonement, one day a year that that high priest was allowed to go into that holy place, whether it be the tabernacle, the tent that they had in the wilderness, or the temple, there was a place, one room in that place where they went to make sacrifices one day a year, and only the high priest was allowed to go in there. And that high priest would enter into that room through a heavy veil, heavy curtain, and he would step through that veil, step through that curtain, and he would have a basin, a bowl of blood, and a hyssop branch. And he would take that blood that was shed from the sacrifice, he would dip the branch in, and he would begin to sprinkle that blood on, depending on whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of the people of Israel's sin, essentially, And as he sprinkles that blood on the ark, it's showing that blood is shed to cover those sins. And that priest went into that place to do those things with a rope tied around his waist. Because if the sheer presence and glory of God was to kill that priest, I don't see many volunteers to go get him. Uh, It's not something like, okay, I'll go get him. No, it's one of those things where we've got to pull him out. Like, that's it. We're not going in after him. So they, they have this all set up because God is so holy, and he is in this system only there to see that sacrifice made on that day. And that was what the high priest did. But when the high priest was finished on the inside, he went out to the people all the people who had gathered around. And he took that same branch and that same basin and he sprinkled it over the crowds. And the idea was that that blood was now covering them as well. And so the the author of Hebrews is using that temple picture, using that picture of a high priest who would make a sacrifice for the people to remind these Christians, these persecuted Christians of their uh, representative, that it's not any longer... That sacrificial system where someone has to go in on their behalf and and sacrifice has to be made because at the end of every year, it had to be done again. The best case scenario, this is only pushing your sin off for one more year. It was never complete. The author of Hebrews in verses 19 and 20 is reminding the people that's not the way it's done anymore. You don't need a priest You don't need a sacrifice every year. You don't need someone going beyond this veil to offer sacrifice up to God because that veil is gone. That veil has been torn. The author of Hebrews in in verses 19 and 20 even describes that that veil was Jesus' flesh, that somehow when Jesus' body is broken, that that veil is torn. And it's torn from top to bottom, which we don't talk about often, but it's so important. It's It's not torn from the bottom up. It's torn from the top down. It is a work that God has done. And so the other Hebrews is trying to remind these people, you now have a relationship with God. You now have access to the God of heaven, not one day a year through a priest after a sacrifice, but because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. You have a relationship Because of what he's done. By placing your faith in Jesus, you now have that relationship. And he's trying, I think, to get the people of Hebrews back to those basics, back to that fundamental to say, look, when the the curtain is torn, when Jesus is crucified, Matthew tells us that that curtain is torn top to bottom. It's it's one of those things. It's not just, and this is one of the things that, that we have to talk about. It's not just... The complete and perfect sacrifice of of Jesus that deals with sin just for a year, but for forever. It is a finished work. It is a complete work. So they have access to God by faith because of the work of Jesus. But we said this is a letter of encouragement, so how exactly is that supposed to encourage the people? Just returning them to those basics, saying, you have a relationship with God because of Jesus. This is probably something these people know. So why is that an encouragement? How is that an encouragement? I think what the author of, of Hebrews really wants to get across is you have a relationship with the God of heaven. Not because a priest went in on your behalf, but because God came down in flesh and died for you. That's the reason you have a relationship with God. And those sins are completely and perfectly and forever paid for. And if you are right with God because of the work of Jesus and the faith that you put in him, if you're right with God, it does not matter who is against you. It does not matter the circumstance. It does not matter the issue. It does not matter the problem. Because guess what? Because you have access to God, because you have a relationship with God, you can go to him anytime, about anything, for any reason. So if you have that type of of, of relationship, that type of access to God, then all of the circumstances, all of the stuff that is is outside, all of those things that are are weighing in on you or pushing in on you, you can take those to God. That is an encouragement to know that we do have a relationship with God because of what God has done for us, which makes it even more secure because it's not bottom up. It's top down. He did the work. I'm just trusting in that work. To have that assurance and to have that relationship and to know I can go to him for anything had to be an encouragement for these believers. But the author of Hebrews takes it one step further in that next verse, verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. From Aaron to the time of... Jesus, I believe there were 80 some odd high priests, and none of them ever, ever get the title great high priest, great high priest. They're high priests, apparently they weren't great. He, I think, I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across is this great high priest, this Jesus, he's the type of representative you want. I don't know about you, but I, I drive around and I see all sorts of billboards for legal firms. You've got Alexander Shinara, you've got that other guy who's the Alabama Hammer, um, you've got the other guys who are like supposedly the world's biggest law firm and they are for the people. Um, I, I can't think of all of them, but you've seen the, 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 the billboards and the signs and all those things. Now, at the end of every commercial, or at the bottom of the screen. You got small print, you got the really fast talking that's like no You're like, wait, what was that? Uh, no, what is it? No um, No statements being made that the quality of legal services performed, is any greater than the, the, the quality of legal services by someone else. So essentially it's like, hey, we're the biggest, we're the best, you need to choose us, but by the way, we can't technically say that we're the best because we can't guarantee that our services are any better than anybody else's services. It's almost the opposite of what Jesus is doing as a high priest. He doesn't just say, I'm pretty good, but there are other ways that you could solve your problems. I legally can't say, I'm the best way. No, he is the best way. He is the perfect representative. He is a representative. And, and really, you get into Paul and Romans, and you have this, this picture of, of legal defense, that Jesus is this advocate on our behalf. Jesus is the perfect advocate, the best defense attorney, never loses Yeah. If I want an advocate, I want the guy who's always going to win, who's always going to make the case. That is who Jesus is. He is the great high priest. So if I have to have a representative, he's the one I want. And the author of Hebrews is trying to get the people to see that. Look, you have this relationship. It's based on the work that God has done through Jesus for you. It's completely paid for your sin. It is something that he did. So it's not something that you could mess up or lose. It's something that he is still doing for us as an advocate, as a representative, as a great high priest. And because he is Jesus, he is a perfect representative. He is never going to fail in his representation. And that to me is an encouragement. So I, I know it had to be an encouragement to those people who heard in the, in the, the, during the persecution and the times that the Hebrews faced. So you have these pictures of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus as, and this is something else to talk about. As he, he talks about that he has made a new and living way through the curtain. We oftentimes, when we come to Scripture, and, and as we read Scripture, if there's a word we understand, those are the words that we usually gloss over, right? I understand the word new. It's not really anything new to me. It's, it's one of those things where new means different. It means something that came after, something else that's older. I, I see that word, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's a new way. And, and, and in some sense, Jesus is a new way. There's an old way, there's an old covenant, there's an old testament, there's a new commandment, there's a new testament. I get that he's new in that way, but when you look at that word, it's not just communicating new. It actually translates, and this is very strange, it, it translates freshly slain, and it's the idea that a sacrifice is fresh. And so the author of Hebrews says, by the way, this sacrifice is new, it's fresh. Kind of a weird thing to say. It's fresh. The author of Hebrews is making the point there is no expiration date on the power of Jesus. There is no expiration date on the work of Jesus. It's just as powerful, it's just as fresh as it ever was. And not only, and he goes a step further, not only is it fresh, not only is it still powerful, it's living. He may have died, but he is not still dead. It is a living sacrifice, which seems like one of those juxtapositions like jumbo shrimp, how are you a living sacrifice? It doesn't make sense. If you're a sacrifice, aren't you dead? The The, the point the writer's making is this is a living sacrifice. This is someone who was sacrificed, who was dead, but is no longer dead, has risen, is alive. So this sacrifice is fresh. It's still powerful. It's living. It's active. It's new. All of those things are true about the sacrifice. All of those things are true about who he is. He is that perfect advocate. So all of these truths are laid out to encourage the people of Hebrews. And then there's instructions that follow. There's instructions that follow. Beginning in verse 22, the the writer begins to tell them what they should do in light of these truths. So you have this sacrifice that has completely changed everything. There's no longer this sacrificial system. It's all based on Jesus. He's now an advocate, and he's a perfect advocate, a great high priest. All of these things are true. And then there's instruction. And it comes in verse 22 as instructions to draw near with assurance. Draw near with assurance. The writer goes back to that priestly image from the Day of Atonement that we talked about. And... He talks about drawing near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean. What the writer of, of, of Hebrews is reminding us is that we can draw near. Why can we draw near? Because our hearts are being made different. That priestly image is one of him going in with that blood and sprinkling it over the ark to show that sins have been covered, and then going out to the people and sprinkling it over the people. And the people, it would have gotten on their clothes, and they probably would have been glad to have gotten it on their clothes, to have that sign that, that the blood was shed, that it is covering them. But that work was on the outside. The writer of Hebrews is making it clear, the work that Jesus is doing In his sacrifice, the blood that he shed, the blood he shed is not just on the outside. It's in the inside. It is affecting the heart. It has sprinkled the heart clean. It is actually changing the person from the inside out. And because you're being made new, because you're being changed from the inside out, you can draw near with assurance. Because it's not based on man, did I make enough sacrifices? Did I do enough things right? Have I been a good enough person? Those aren't the things that give us assurance to draw near to God. If they are, we'll never feel like we have the ability to draw near. There's always going to be some sort of doubt or fear, something that's going to keep us arm's length away from the Lord because we think we're not good enough. But it's not what we do. It's what he did. And what he did can transform from the inside out. It actually affects the heart. And because it's the work he's doing, because it's affecting our heart and changing us from the inside out, that's what allows us to draw near with confidence. But it's not only drawing near for this this, this full assurance and having our heart sprinkled clean, but he goes on to say, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So he's given us that priestly image again and I, I failed to mention this but the priest would go and make a sacrifice for himself first. He had to make sure his sin was dealt. Then he would go and take this ceremonial bath. He would he would essentially wash himself, put on all his priestly garments and then go into Uh, the Holy of Holies. And the idea was, because he made the sacrifice and because he was washed clean, he was ready to be presented to God. The picture here is that when our hearts are sprinkled clean, when those bodies are washed, essentially what it's getting at is it's not just the sin that's dealt with, but it's the guilt and the shame and the fear that come with those things. Those things have been washed away. Those things have been, as as far as the east is from the west, those things have been removed from us. And so to think about that, to think about the assurance that we have to draw near, to think about how he's changing us from the inside out, how he has forgotten, literally forgotten about the sin and the shame that still grabs at us, that still holds us back, that we still remember. I would argue that if you still can remember that sin and that shame and that fear and that feeling, that you have a very low view of who God is and what he's done through Jesus. Because if you're still holding on to that sin and that shame, you're essentially saying, I'm not so sure that it was washed away. I'm not so sure that it's been handled. It has been. He's told us that it has been. He went to the cross and died so that it would be. So we can let it go because he's let it go. So he tells us we can draw near with assurance because our hearts are being changed. The fear and the shame, all that outward stuff that holds us back, that's being dealt with. But he goes on and not only do we need to draw near with confidence because of that work that he's doing, but also in verse 23, he tells us, hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Since he who promised is faithful. Now the picture here is one of really a ship that has set a course. And there is no wind, no wave, no anything that can alter that ship's course. Those things are going to hit against it. They're going to knock into it, but that ship's course is set and it is staying on course. And for us, I think the encouragement there is that we have to understand that in holding to that hope, it's as certain as a set course. It's as certain as a ship that cannot be knocked to the left or right, that it is a set course, that it is something that is going to happen. There's nothing that can knock us off course. And I think in, in most kind of ways that we think about it, we think about that picture and we'd be like, oh, we're, you know, we're driving the boat. Um, and, and he set a course and we're doing our best to, to, to stay on it, to hold it. That's not really the picture. The picture would be that he is driving the boat and I'm just on the boat. And I, I see waves coming. I see rocks out there. And I'm thinking to myself, we are not going to make it. We're probably going to hit something. But he doesn't let it happen. The the course is set and those things are sure. And so while I may see things and think, oh, I don't know about this. He's not thinking that. He knows that it's set. So the call here is to, to hold on to the hope that we have in the Lord. And it's important to say it's not about your grip strength. It's not about your ability to hold. The call is to hold on to your hope. But that's not the end of the verse. That's not where the writer leaves us. He says, what? Hold on to our confession of hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. It's all about him. He is the one who's faithful. He is the one promised. So as much as I'm called to cling to him and to trust him, I've got to understand that all those times that I can't hold on, he's holding on. Because he's the one who's promised, and he is the one who is faithful. And then the last instruction that he gives us, and this is the one that you're probably all excited about, uh, the the moment you've all been waiting for, stir one another up. Let us consider how to stir one another up. How do we provoke one another? Well, this is, uh, it's a loaded word. I mean, there's a a lot that goes into this. This is a word that does mean provoke, that does mean to agitate, that does does mean to challenge. Um, Ironically, If you go back to Acts and you look at Paul and Barnabas and their disagreement over John Mark, their sharp disagreement, it's this word. It's the word for stir one another up. So how can a word that talks about two people having opposite thoughts on an issue and getting really passionate about it and going against each other, how can that type of word be good for us, how do we even approach that? What do we do with it? And I think we've got to understand, we, we've got to just admit some things first. And I think the first thing that we have to admit is that our faith, our following of the Lord, our walk with the Lord is not a solo pursuit. As much as it as much as we say, uh you know individual personal relationship with the lord and yes you do have a personal relationship with the lord he is capable of of speaking to you directly and 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 working in your life in ways that only you see yes there is a personal relationship but that personal relationship is not the end all be all of your walk with the lord he has called you to be a part of his church And the church is not, of course, the building. We've been going over this with the kids on Wednesday night. The church is not the building. It's the people in the building. It's the followers of the Lord, and he has called you into this place. So your pursuit is not solo. Now, you all know, I'm guessing, that Thanksgiving's coming up. The holidays are coming up. You all are going to see your family Family is a group of people that you can get really passionate around. Um, I don't know if you guys have like no fly conversation. Like, we don't bring that up at, at Thanksgiving. You know, save that for some other time. We're trying to have a nice dinner. We're trying to be a family. Don't bring up, you know, there's like a list. Don't bring up politics. Don't bring up this. Don't bring up that. It's one of those things where when you're in those relationships with people that you really care about and and talk about things that you really care about, there is the ability to get really passionate, the ability to get really passionate. I don't remember what brought me to watching this clip, but it was a clip of Steve Jobs, who was the guy who started Apple, very successful, lots of money. Um, he He was talking to somebody. They were interviewing him about, hey, what made you a good leader? And he tells this story, and I can't remember if it was just a friend that he knew or a family member or what, but the guy was a tinkerer. He was kind of a, you know, just would find stuff and put it together. He, he could build anything. And he said, I, I, was, I was at his house one day, and he wanted to show me something that he had put together. And I walk in, and I'm in this room, and he said, it's, it's a coffee can, and there's some little motor, there's some sort of rubber cord type thing. He's like, I don't know what it is. And the guy's like, let's go get some rocks. He's like, so we walk in his backyard, and we get some rocks, and they're all dirty and muddy and, you know, misshapen and weird. And he says, he told me to throw them in the coffee can. We put some stuff in there with the coffee can. And he said he started that little motor up, and the coffee can started to spin. And he said it was the loudest, just banging around, just terrible noise. And he says, we talked for a little while, and and he said, well, we'll we'll give it some time, and we'll go back out there. He said, we go back out there the next day or something and he opens that coffee can and he said those rocks were the most beautiful rocks I think I had ever seen. Completely polished, beautiful colors just had completely changed and he said I realized then that when people who are passionate about things bang up against each other, rub up against each other, he said they have the ability to produce something beautiful in one another. He said, just like those rocks are banging around, and there's, he said, it was loud. There's conflict. There's, there's things happening. They're, they're, they're banging around. He said, what it produced was beautiful. He said, standing in there at the moment, it didn't look so great. It definitely didn't sound so great. And I think what we have to, to realize is the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, if you really care about the people that you're around, and you really care about the Lord's call on their life and your life, There are going to be times when it is appropriate to challenge, when it is appropriate to stir up, when it is appropriate to provoke. Now, the one thing that we have to understand in this is that instructions from the Lord are never an excuse to be rude, are never an excuse to try to get our agenda hot on the floor. So this is, we're talking about a challenge that is because you care for someone else, their walk with the Lord what it, you know, your own walk with the Lord, those types of things. We're talking about a challenge that is trying to produce something in someone's beautiful, not just for the sake of banging around and, and making a lot of noise. So I think that's something that, that we've got to get in, get in our minds first. Now look at what he says in, in verse 24. Let us watch out for one another, or let us consider one another, to, to provoke love, to stir up love and good works. That's the point. First and foremost, you have to consider other people. It's not a solo pursuit. You have to look outside of yourself. You have to look outside of, of the things that you're going through. You've got to have that perspective that says, I'm trusting the Lord to handle everything else, and if he's handling everything else, if he's the perfect sacrifice, if he's the perfect advocate, if all those things from verse 19, 20, and 21 are true, then I can let him handle those things, and I can then take and look outside of myself to other people and say, how can I minister to them? If I'm trusting him to handle those things, it frees me up to look around and see what I can do. And it's considering one another, But it's also this idea of what? Stirring them up for what? Not just to provoke them, not just to make them mad, not just to shame them because you think you're doing something better than they are, but it's for love and good works. It's so that they can grow in their relationship with the Lord and so that they can essentially get more involved and he only gives us, the writer of Hebrews only gives us one example of this. And I wish he gave us more examples. I wish it was a different example because I don't want to talk about this. But um, the example he gives is not letting people neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more uh, as, we see, as you see the day approach. So the stirring up of one another is, is good good. It's producing some things. It's certainly contextual. It's not just let me hurt somebody or, you know, it's not, that's not what's happening. It's for a purpose. But then the example he gives is, hey, there are some people who aren't coming to church. Don't let them neglect to gather together. Now, I'll say this, their context is just a little bit different than ours because these people aren't coming to church because there's the possibility that they could die or their family could die or they could be arrested. That's a little different than like, hey, I just don't want to, or I don't feel like it, that kind of thing. So that, that, that part is different. And I'm not going to harp on this. We've talked about this before. People have mentioned it. Sunday evening service, attendance, all those things. I'm not going to get into it. All I'm going to say is this, and this is my challenge to you. This is me trying to practice the text, not trying to be rude, anything. Please hear me. If I told Jess, listen, how many times do we meet? Sunday morning, Sunday, so you're looking at three, right? And we say, you know what? Two out of three is good enough. Jess. 60% 60% of the time, 66% of the time, I'm going to be faithful to you. Pretty, pretty good standard. Students, go to school 66% of the time. Feel free to shoot for a 66 on your next exam. Um, that, we have to ask a question about standards. What is the standard? Now, I'm not trying to get into legalism and say, you've got to be here all the time. That's not the point. The point is that there are things in other areas of life, your job, you can't show up there 66% of the time. It's one of those things where even other areas of our lives, we have a higher standard than we do not just church attendance. Hear me. There are people who are here all the time church involvement. There are many areas of ministry that currently do not have people serving or need people to serve. I'm not even going to touch last Sunday in the business meeting when we talk about tithing. There are standards that we hold ourselves to out in the world that we will not hold ourselves to in this place, and it is wrong. That's the challenge. That's it. Now, I get it. I'm talking to you guys. You're here but do with that what you will. Um, that's, that's the challenge. We cannot continue to go along with standards that we wouldn't even use in other parts of our lives when it comes to the things of God. We, we should be different here, if not anywhere else. So... As, the, as the, the writer of Hebrews is, 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 is trying to communicate to these people, look, I understand you're being persecuted. I understand that it's dangerous. I understand that it's difficult. But remember who you are following. This is the God who came down from heaven to sacrifice himself to make a way for you to have a relationship. Yeah. And that way is still powerful. That way is still fresh. That way is still... Uh, living and active. And that way, that advocate, that representative, Jesus, is still praying and representing on your behalf and is doing so perfectly before the Father. And those things are true, then you can draw near with assurance. Not because of what you did, but because of what he's done, because he's working something in your heart and making you new. You can draw near because the fear and the guilt and the shame that comes with sin has been dealt with. You can draw near for those things. You can hold fast and not hold fast because you're holding on tight enough, but holding fast because you know the one who promised is faithful, that he's holding on to you when you can't hold on to him. But you know that that course is set. You know where things are going and you're going to hold on tight. And for the last thing, we're in this together. And we should care enough about one another to, yes, sometimes it's going to get passionate. Sometimes it may provoke. Sometimes it may be a challenge. But if it's done with the mindset and the heart that I want to stir them up to love and good works, that I'm even considering them, looking outside of myself and saying, I want to make them better because I love them and I love the Lord. I want them more involved because I love them and I love the Lord. And frankly, we need them. And that, that gets it really the, the, the final question. And that is, why are we here anyways? Talk to the kids about this. Why do we go to church? What's the point? They came up with some pretty good answers. Their, their answers were, we come here to worship, we come here to fellowship, and we come here to learn. That was the three things that they gave me. That we want to learn more about who he is that we want to be together in fellowship, and that we want to take time to make the most of him, that we want to worship him. So why are we here? If we're not going to hold ourselves to a a standard, if we're not going to pursue him, if we're not going to look out for one another, why are we here? We should be here for those things, to learn, to fellowship, to worship. I'm here because I need to be. This comes to no shock, hopefully no shock to you, but... I need help. I'm not perfect. I need people to challenge me. I need people to hold me accountable. I want to do the same for other people. I want us to care about one another that we are willing to do that. And it, oh, it's going to be loud. We're going to bang together. We're not going to... It's going it's to cost some. you know. It's okay. It's okay. It's going to be uncomfortable. It might be new. It might be something we've never done. But if it produces in us what he's trying to produce in us, if it produces in this place what he's trying to produce in this place, then it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for those who are gathered here. I pray that uh, the words that you have given me uh, have been edifying and helpful. I pray that you would help these things to to be heard in the right way. I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our life, that you would help us to know so certainly who you are and what you've done for us, and that know that we can approach you, that, that we have access to you, that we have a relationship with you because of what you've done through Jesus, but that we can approach you with assurance, that we can come to you with anything, that we can hold tight and know that you're holding tight to us, that you're faithful I pray that you would help us even as we think about challenging one another, that you would help us to do that in the right spirit, do that in a way that honors you, that shows concern for other people, and ultimately strengthens this body. Help us to uh, apply these things to our life. Help us to be faithful, dear Lord, and we'll give you all the glory and honor for it. All these things we ask in your son's name.